0: So today we continue our message series about interdependence, about the fact that none of us, nothing in this life exists in isolation from each other, that at the very, very heart of what we call reality, there lies relationship. And in the name of relationship, each of us are called to live lives of depth and purpose and meaning. It is by entering into relationship that we find who we are. Now, we've taken this step by step, as you'll see, relationship at different levels. We focused first on the core, the center, the self. Whitman's great phrase, do I contradict myself, he asks, well, I contain multitudes. All of us, the relationship that stands at the heart of our lives, we all contain multitudes. We are not just one single thing. And we moved on last week to community. To the belief, the absolute conviction that our actions, both beneficial or harmful, have incredible power and affecting the lives of other people around us. It is this conviction that I will not be fully me until I have the experience of the we. I will not be fully me until I have the experience of the we. And so today we take that a further step, a further step in relationship into a wider world and we're going to hear a lot about it this week coming up with Earth Day. Now, obviously, there is nothing more interdependent than the environment, than the natural world. There is only one. We all share it. It is there for all of us. It will be healthy or will not be healthy, depending upon our relationship to it. Now, like many of you, like many of you, I've awakened in the last couple of years to the reality of global climate change. That's due to our incredible energy consumption as human beings. And I cannot say I know exactly what all the science says. I will raise my hand in ignorance about what the absolute minutiae is about. But we can see, we can see in terms of the projections of where our world may be headed, our natural world may be headed. And whatever the outcome, those compelling evidence now is that we need... To change our lives. We need to change our relationship to the natural world. Our own small way in Wellsprings. We're doing that right now. The kids when they left. I saw them going out with butterfly nets. I think it was. Maybe they were going fishing in streams. To catch some little goldfish or something. But what they were doing. Is they're going to take some nature hikes. They're spending this month. The month of Earth Day. Deepening their relationships with the natural world. Trying to understand and experience. That sense of awe and wonder and peace. That all of us enter into. When we are at that place of experiencing our world, not using it for other purposes, but simply experiencing it for its joy and its grace. And for those of you who are involved in our gleanings program, we're going to be starting with Maisie's Farm coming up in just a few weeks. About five weeks from now, we're going to have our first Saturday out there. And Maisie's is a nonprofit conservation-based, organic farm that is dedicated to keeping, and for some people this seems a gasp, open space in Chester County. Some of you who've been here a while know that, well, actually, we're part of that. All of us, or many of us, are new to Chester County, but Maisie's is dedicated to that, dedicating to having a healthy relationship with our natural world. I think that's what we're all looking for in interdependence, whether it's the natural world or whether it's each other. We're looking for that active, engaged, healthy relationship to each other, to our lives, so that we know we are existing in something that many of us call harmony. And it's not just about the facts, not just about getting the right information so that we can find how to live in harmony. It's also about the stories that we hold. It's really a product of our moral imagination. How do we see ourselves, our lives intertwined with the lives of other people and the life of all that is greater than each of us just as an individual? The story is just as important as the facts. And one of my favorite stories, and actually one of the best religious resources of the last 30 or 40 years has been science fiction. I'm not a Trekkie, I never liked Star Trek all that much, but science fiction, science fiction has asked the question over and over and over again, how do we enlarge that moral imagination? How do we enlarge that definition of us so that more can be included rather than fewer and fewer being excluded? Ursula Clay Le Guin is a name some of you might know. She had a wonderful, wonderful story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And it's really a very pointed extreme fable. You see, at some point in the future, there is a society that appears appears to be an absolute utopia, appears to have everything going for it. Everyone is fed, everyone is educated, everyone is nurtured. There's no more arguments about health care and there's no more debates in which shoddy questions are asked. Everything is okay. Everything is okay, and not just okay, but deeply peaceful. But there's one thing wrong in Omelas, and by the way, Ursula K. Le Guin got the idea for Omelas by Salem Oregon in her rearview mirror as she was driving away one day. Omelas, Salem Oregon, flip it around. The problem in Omelas, in this otherwise absolutely beautiful society, is that there is one who suffers. See, when a child becomes an adult in Omelas, they learn the secret. The secret that keeps their society functioning well for all but one. See, in a dirty cell, kept away from light, and tormented, even tortured, there lies a child. Sort of a kind of reverse Jesus story, if you will. There lies a child who is tormented. And the deal, if you want to live in Omelas, is that you have to understand that your pleasure, your happiness, your well-being comes at the expense of of this one child who is locked away in this dark, dank, horrible cell. Now, does that make sense? Of course it doesn't. This is science fiction. It's a fable. And there come those who, as they enter maturity, recognize that this is too great a price to pay, and they give the story its title. Those are the ones who walk away from a Omelas, who will not have their happiness, their well-being, purchased at the expense of one other person this innocent child who the covenant dictates has to suffer so they can be free now this is a fable and it is pointed and extreme and it doesn't quite make logical sense but really it's about waking up to relationship It's about waking up to relationship and asking the question who belongs to the us who belongs to us who is moral who is good Who is worthy of kindness? That's the question that exists at the heart of Omelas and those who walk away saying, Either it exists for all of us, or I will not be at peace while others are suffering. Interdependence challenges us to ask this question, and it's a tension at the heart of all of our lives between tribalism and universalism. This right here, those of us here today, we're a form of a tribe. The tribe recognizes our kind There's nothing wrong with being in a tribe. I recognize many of you have left other religious communities because the tribe seemed too small. It seemed too narrow. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. All of us, we have particular relationships, affinities, families, friendships. We're flesh and blood creatures. We are not abstractions. And we get the meaning of our lives from being with and for other people. That's what it means to belong to a tribe. However, this is the issue. This is the problem. When the relationships within the tribe preclude any important moral belonging with people outside of the tribe, that is when suffering begins. That is when great damage is done to our world. In fact, that is what is going on in our world en masse right now, is that some people have defined their tribe, Shia versus Sunni, Israelite versus Palestinian, Christian versus non-Christian, it can be cut up all kinds of different ways, that for those who belong to the tribe, those are the only important moral or spiritual boundaries. When the boundaries of meaning end with the end of the tribe, that is where interdependence is most important to call us back. Call us back from the brink and remind us we are all in this together, that what happens to one of us happens to all of us. What affects one rests in the lives of all. One of our great teachers, also a bit of a science fiction and horror writer, Edgar Allan Poe. Any of you remember The Mask of the Red Death? Remember that story from a long time ago? Mask of the Red Death is this idea that there is a plague sweeping throughout the land. And there are these survivors who have the idea that all they need to do is go up to the tippy top of the mountain. Go up to the top of the mountain, create a society that is separate down from life in the valley. And what will happen up there is they can party, party like it's 1999, as Prince said. They will be able to experience all the joys of being out of the valley where the plague is. And one night, one night, they throw an amazing masquerade ball to celebrate their freedom. The only issue is, however, is that the plague has come in wearing the mask of the Red Death. Ultimately, they realize there is no escaping. There is only entering into relationship. This is an important moral lesson. Like some of you, I imagine a few of you, I was at a Passover Seder last night. Now I grew up in a family, a Jewish family, largely secular, largely Jewishly cultural, and actually maybe then it's not a surprise that I became a UU minister. But I grew up in a family that every year would try and set the land speed record for how quickly we could get through the Seder. It's a version of what comedian Alan King said is the, at heart, and again he was being joking, but at heart is what every Jewish holiday is about. They tried to kill us, they failed, now let's eat. (laughs) In my family, there was some truth to that. How quickly could we get through it to, you know, get to the good stuff, get to the eating? It was, I'm not trying to put my family down. It was warm, it was loving, but it was lacking in a depth of, you know, spiritual content. We felt like we were sort of doing someone else's ritual. And there was one point that I remember last night of what I particularly do like about Passover, something that did stick. As you know, the final and ultimate plague, nothing worse than this, the final and ultimate plague that the God of the Hebrews sends down upon the Egyptians and the Pharaoh is the killing of the firstborn. The killing of the firstborn all throughout the land. And it is this that finally breaks the will of Pharaoh and lets Moses' people go. Let's Moses' people go through this horrible act. And some of you might know the Passover ritual is the point in which the cup of rejoicing that each person has at the table pours off for each of the ten plagues a drop or perhaps even a torrent from the cup of their rejoicing to mark the fact, mark the fact when other people have to suffer so that some people can be free, it is not a full and complete victory for this life. It is not something to be absolutely celebrated, that if one suffers, all must suffer. This is an affirmation of interdependence at its deepest level of the mutual bonds that tie us to each other, that there is no joy so complete when it comes at the expense of another's defeat. This is a way out of tribalism. A way to hope that there might be something beyond the kind of Hatfield and McCoy's life that we're living in right now. A way past revenge and a recognition, a recognition that a victory victory secured at another's defeat is not ultimately complete. But there's a deeper meaning even in the Passover ritual. It's kind of ironic that I never really fully realized what Passover meant until I became a Unitarian Universalist. There's a deeper meaning in that retelling of the story of the Israelites being released from bondage in Egypt. It rests on this. See, religion becomes only a tribal thing or a relic, an empty ritual, when it is a recounting of the past, not a story present. Two different meanings of remembering. I mean, think about how we can talk about that word remembering. I remember it. I recall it. It happened in the past and I'm calling it to mind now, but it's over. It's done. Nothing can be shaped it is finished, and then there's a different way of understanding remembering. Take the word apart, re, member. Remember, kind of like what they do on the electric company, where they put the words together. Re, member. Re, Re-me- I don't know. Any of you remember that? Okay. <laughs> Take it apart. You see that actually what it's about is putting our lives back together. Remembering putting back together and this is very much based upon the original latin meanings of what relationship and religion are all about some people say Unitarian Universalists are not a real you ever get this one not a real religion because we don't have a central creed to which everyone must subscribe and I say well no that is a creedal religion but the creedal part is the adjective that describes the noun the creedal is the modifier part because you know what religion means In its ultimate goal, re ligare. Think of your ligaments. What do your ligaments do? They hold it together. That's what religion means in its original, original content and meaning. To put back together that which has been taken apart. Same thing with relationship. Relating. Bringing back together a restoration of things in connection. When religion is just a recollected past, just a recitation of someone else's story, it is, I think, kind of like Latin, a dead language. We can learn from it, we can study it, but it has nothing to do with how we communicate with ourselves or with the world. Instead, we are called to ask a different question. A different question, which is this. What meaningful part of the story that was passed is still going on right here and right now. And we can take part in it, not just as observers, but that we are called to get in the game. That this is our life as well. Not just someone else's 2,500, 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, but right now we are called to enter the story of life. Hearing the story last night of the groanings, Of the Israelites in bondage and in slavery I thought about actually just about this time last year Up on Route 100 About I think less than a mile From where our current office is located There was a quote-unquote massage parlor That was busted Busted and two women were arrested For prostitution and taken into custody And as you started to dig into the story a little bit And the follow-up reports contained this It turns out that most likely, they were not there at all willingly. They were slaves. They were slaves forced into prostitution. I was thinking about these two women who remain unnamed to me to this day. That brought me to a recent book that some of you might know about, and I cannot commend to you strongly enough. It is called A Crime So Monstrous. A Crime So Monstrous. It's about slavery in the modern world. It's written by a young man, I say young, he's I think seven years younger than I am, named Ben Skinner, and he writes with all the moral urgency of someone for whom the idea of hell is not an idea, he has seen it. He has seen hell on this earth. He defines slavery very, very simply, but in a way that really breaks it down. Slavery is any context in which someone is forced to work under threat of violence for never anything more than a subsistence wage. Recently, he was writing on the progressive blog site, the Huffington Post, talking about what he had learned in writing A Crime Most Monstrous. And I'm going to be honest, what I'm going to read to you right now is disturbing. There is no other way around it. It is disturbing, but a greater part of the ethics of learning to live in interdependence is learning not to look away, learning to look upon our world and our lives for what they actually contain. And Ben Skinner gets the start of what he's writing, talking about Obama's speech on identity and race from a few weeks back. And he's talking about slavery in the past tense. He's talking about African-American chattel slavery that our government and our society practiced until the Civil War. And quoting Senator Obama, he begins, Words in a parchment would not be enough to deliver slaves from bondage, Obama said. He was speaking of his wife's 19th century forebears. But he might have been speaking about a young, mentally handicapped woman that was offered to me in trade for a used car in a brothel in Bucharest in an attempt to make her sellable. Her pimp had put makeup on her face, but when he presented her to me, the terrified woman was crying so hard that it had smeared. Her right arm bore angry red slashes where apparently she had tried to escape the daily assaults the only way that she thought she knew how. Or he might have been speaking of the mother living on the Indian border with Nepal who broke down in tears as she described the pain of giving her son to a trafficker in order to save him, she thought, from starvation, only to have him completely just disappear into the world of bondage, along with thousands of other children in India's carpet belt. I found, I tracked down the slave trader that had sold her son to the loom owner and brought him to the mother. In a belated act of contrition, he too wept and pled for the mother's forgiveness. Or he might have been speaking about a Haitian girl whom I met as a 20-year-old survivor. She had been held as a domestic and sex slave for three years starting at the age of nine. And the place was in America. The place of her bondage was a $350,000 household in suburban Miami. Ben Skinner continues. There are more slaves today than at any point in human history. Think about that. There are more slaves right now than at any point in human history. The UN estimates that it goes as low as 12 million people and ranges up to about 27 million people who are real slaves worldwide. Yet us, yet our leaders rarely mention their plight because it just doesn't register on our American radar because slavery, we think, is everywhere illegal, and it is technically illegal. But it is hidden behind the fraud of the traffickers and the masters and the corrupt government officials. Real slaves, those who are forced to work under threat of violence for pay never beyond subsistence, they are everywhere and they are nowhere. In 2003, I set out to find slaves and their captors for my book, A Crime So Monstrous. Whenever I visited a new country, my first challenge was to find a single slave. After ingratiating myself with the right people, often shady characters, I went, like Alice, through the looking glass into a world that few of us see. And then the slaves, I tell you, were everywhere. Our government estimates... Estimates that there are about 15,000 to 17,000 people brought into America every year to be slaves. See, right now, in this kind of global interdependent economy, slavery is really cheap. Ben Skinner in his book tells stories about $9, $10, $12, a little bit more expensive if the person could do some kind of skilled work, maybe $50. That's what a human life can cost. See, in the days of African chattel slavery, which of course was just as monstrous a crime, it actually took a lot of money to force people into bondage and to bring them across the ocean through the Middle Passage. Nowadays, it is cheap. Kevin Bales, who is one of the foremost worldwide activists against slavery, wrote a book that I think sums it up, what we wish would not be, but is, that these people... Are disposable people they are treated as disposable by so many in our world now perhaps when you hear these words or read this as I did for the first time you can feel guilty You can feel overwhelmed you can feel well what can I do well the first thing I would counsel you to say is that ultimately your guilt does no one any good at all our guilt does not do anyone good at all. I'm not going to tell you not to feel guilty. I'm not going to tell myself not to feel guilty, because I do. But listening to that guilt is the most important act of moral imagination that we can have for ourselves. Listening to us, listening to ourselves, listening to each other and asking that question, why, why do I feel guilty? Because that guilt may very well be the voice of interdependence recognizing that relationship is broken for so many millions in our world that we have a profound relationship to each other even if we don't know each other. And through our questions, through our questions, through even our guilt, through our heart sickness, through our pain, through our justifiable outrage, anger, perhaps we start to take the journey like those who walked away from Omelas. In their recognition that their world was built upon the suffering of one who did nothing to deserve that suffering. And they would not purchase their well-being or their happiness at that child's expense. Perhaps when we become like those who can start to walk out slowly, I understand, all of us slowly, but to begin to walk away from Omelas, we can begin to see that child sold by that mother on the border between India and Nepal, we can start to see that child not as that child, but as our child. Imagine who that child is. Imagine their name. Joseph Stalin said, and truly there were few in this life ever more monstrous than he, but Joseph Stalin was absolutely right when he said, the death of one person is a tragedy. The deaths of millions is a statistic. When we get barraged by these numbers, we have to remember to break it down into the life of the individual and see that child sold into slavery as our own, as a child worthy of all the kinds of things that we would hope for our own children here at Wellsprings. We see the young woman who is assaulted daily and who tries to kill herself, as perhaps even our sister, our mother, our daughter. We start to take our own lives seriously. So seriously that we can see the divine spark in ourselves that is in others as well. See, interdependence is really not about moving outward. It's about moving inward. When we recognize all life exists in relationship... We move back into our own lives. If truly everything and leadership and getting things done is just a matter of independence, well then we just sit around and we wait for the right person to tell us what to do and we go and do it. There are the general and then there are the marching, the the, the soldiers at the ground to get their marching orders. That's not what interdependence asks us to do, however. Because in interdependence we are invited to see our lives with the utmost moral seriousness. To take very, very meaningfully the fact that what we do matters. And so we reaffirm, we remember, we recognize that our lives are bound up in the lives of other people. Now interdependence finally cannot be imposed from the outside. Whether it's the natural world, whether it's slavery, it is a matter of better laws being enforced or more creative laws. There's a place for government action. And there are some things that only large groups of representative people can do that individuals cannot do on their own. But I have to tell you, and I say this as a progressive, I say this as not just a spiritual progressive, but also as a political progressive. And by the way, those are not always the same things. They are not overlapping necessarily. But I say this as someone who is a political progressive, that at the same time that I would wish for government to get more involved, and there are times that government getting involved is not just a necessary thing, but a good thing. Before I ask what the government must do, I have to search my my own heart and say, am I doing what I should do? Some of my beefs with modern liberalism. It's one of my beefs with my own kind, is that we can tend to look upon big institutions to do what we ourselves sometimes might not be willing to do. I have to ask myself that question. See, because like every meaningful social change in our world, abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement, the real change has to start in the lives of people on the ground. Or political action, social action risks being something imposed from the outside in that isn't an expression of our core values as a human being. So hearing about these 12 million, 27 million, hundreds of thousands of slaves right here in America, what can we do? What might we do together? Well, I want to ask you to see this website right here called freetheslaves.net. It is the single, single best source of information about what individuals and communities are doing, are doing to place themselves into better relationship with people who are the most vulnerable in our world. And remarkably, for as depressing and despairing as slavery is, it is remarkably hopeful because the stories rest upon everyday, ordinary, average people just like us who have chosen to make this issue a core aspect of their lives, that they will not and cannot look away. And so we begin to ask ourselves questions if we are intrigued and bothered and our hearts are hurt by the issue of modern slavery. We start to ask the questions, and it's not a matter of me telling you where you should or should not shop, but we start to ask the questions. Where does our food come from? Where do the goods that we consume come from? Where our clothes come from? These are all questions that I put to you, not as things that have definitive answers, but as ways to enter this conversation. And perhaps you think I am just one, and we are just not so many here, even as we are growing at Wellsprings. What can I do? Well. There was a blog that I read of a UU minister recently and she was talking about changing some of her consumer spending habits because she wanted to buy produce that was fresh and local and didn't have pesticides and was organic and she was really frustrated to be honest with you. She said, what good will it do? I am just one. These goods are expensive. A lot of other people aren't going to buy them. And someone responded back in the smallest way. This is how all change happens. What you are doing by making that decision, by talking about it, by writing about it, you are influencing others. Others join in like that old Breck commercial. Told two friends, and she told two friends, and she told two friends. This is how all authentic change happens and starts. And if perhaps what I have told you today feels too daunting, just remember that it was only 175 years ago that more than half of America thought that African chattel slavery was the natural and normative state of affairs. That's what we used to assume in this country was just the state of being. It is not any longer, and it is because people asked questions. It is because people remained open. If we remain open to this, we will find ourselves growing in some particular ways. I have to tell you that one of the things that really surprised me that Ben Skinner said, and he comes clearly, I mean he went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, which is like one of the most left-wing colleges in America, but he said that the administration most powerfully opposed opposed to slavery since the time of Lincoln, (laughs) since the time when our slaves were freed, the most powerful administration is this one, largely because evangelical Christians, or at least some evangelical Christians, have made the opposition to slavery their new abolitionism. We might find ourselves coming into contact, if this is something that we might wish to do together, with people with whom we radically disagree, but can agree that no one should be enslaved. I want to leave this question open for you. If you have interest in it, you find yourself bothered or asking the question, what can I do, what can we do? Well, I'd encourage you to start a springboard. Say, ah, 10 weeks together, what can we do? Everything meaningful starts small. If this is something we want to study together, let me know. Let me know when we can start working together and we can start to see what our response can be to help establish relationship with those who have been left out. At the end of every marriage ceremony that I do, and it's becoming increasingly important even for people who are not Jewish, you know the breaking of the glass? L'chaim! Kiss. Everything's good. That breaking the glass is, in fact, an ancient, ancient Jewish ritual and it comes out of Kabbalistic myth. And it's not the kind of Kabbalah that, by the way, Madonna does. That kind of Kabbalah has really, really been bastardized. This is the ancient Jewish mystical tradition. And it says that at the beginning of creation, all, all of the world, all of the universe was contained like a pure, beautiful vase. A glass that was whole and complete. And then, perhaps, for whatever reason, the glass shattered. I think the reason so many people whose weddings I do like that imagery is to remind themselves that as wonderful as their joy is this day, their joy is never fully complete in a world in which the shards are broken, in a world in which there is still so much suffering. And so they commit themselves on this their happiest of days to engage in what the ancient Hebrew calls tikkun ha'olam, the healing of the world. See, in an interdependent world, the world is always waiting for you. The world is always waiting for us. We are, as Annie Dillard once said in a beautiful, felicitous phrase, we are the only hands that God has. Right here in our midst, the world is waiting for you. The world is waiting for us. And there are those out there who need us and are waiting for our goodness and they're waiting for our light. Amen. May you live in blessing.